Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Uh, I know it's still Advent, but we're close enough, so I'm giving you a special dispensation. Merry Christmas. And uh, Merry Christmas to you here and those of you that are joining us online. Did you like that Christmas reading in all those languages? Just about brought a tear to my eye because th- this, is, this is a message for the whole world. Amen. So I like that. And uh, well, I mean, really, we are almost, we're almost to the end of Advent and Christmas is this week. Uh, I'm looking forward to Christmas Eve, you know, it's a big deal here at Word Life. We've done it for 25 years. And it's grown every year, gotten bigger and bigger. Until, you know, the last couple of years, we've had, we've filled up the place three times. Um, that's, that's no small task. And it's really, you know, kind of become a St. Joseph tradition. And, and uh, there was just no way we could, you know, you just can't do as big as that is. You just couldn't do it. So, uh, but I thought, well, you know, we've, we, we can't not have it, and so we're going we're gonna to stream it to you, uh, starting at 2 p.m., then 4 and 6, 8, this is central time now, 10, and then midnight. That's about the time Santa comes down the chimney and <laughs> invite him to watch it with you. <laughs> and, and that's what you should do, by the way. You, you, should, you should invite friends and family to... Uh, Log on to one of the presentations of Christmas Eve at Word of Life. It's going to be fantastic. All right, well, during Advent, we've heard some songs of Messiah. We've heard Isaiah's song, Zachariah's song, Mary's song. And today, uh, we've come to the Christmas story itself. And so we're going to hear the angel's song. The theology of salvation, that is God's action to save us. The theology of salvation is contained in three enormous Christ events. We're not not saved by knowledge, we're saved by things that God has done. And the salvation of God is contained in three enormous Christ events. Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. All of our salvation comes from those three enormous Christ events. Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, or we can say it this way. Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. That's why those are our big days. Christmas. Good Friday and Easter. But the incarnation, Christmas, launches everything. And it ultimately determines everything. Once the Word became flesh, once the eternal Logos of God, in the beginning was the Logos and the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. Now once the Word, the Logos, God the Logos, God the Son. Once the Word becomes flesh 
and enters into human history, it is inevitable that there will be crucifixion. The Apostle Paul explains this. This is, you know, this is the sinful ignorance of the principalities and powers. That is, the structures of power that dominate a fallen world under an evil influence, they are going to crucify that one. That's inevitable. But, of course, of course, you know, they nailed him to the cross. They put him in the ground, but they should have known you can't keep a good man down. And uh, so crucifixion was inevitable, but so was resurrection because death cannot triumph over divinity. But the whole thing is set in motion by the incarnation. When the, when the word came into the world... With the incarnation, the salvation of the world is a foregone conclusion, but it still has to all play out. And so on this Sunday, this final Sunday of Advent, this Sunday right before Christmas, uh, let's once again hear the glad tidings of great joy which shall be unto all people, which is the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. We live in a political world. And this is the world into which Christ was born. Jesus was not born into the romantic, idyllic, bubble of a snow globe <laughs> snow globe yeah i mean at christmas time even the best of us fall under the spell of sentimental kitsch <laughs> i get it and uh so we have snow globe nativity scenes all right i'll give you a dispensation for that too you can have your snow globe nativity scene just remember it's not very real Jesus was not born into a snow globe. Jesus was not born into a dreamy fairy tale. Jesus was born into the world as it is. A world of tyrant kings and their political intrigues. Jesus was born into a world where Caesar Augustus was the emperor. Roman M, the Roman Republic has given way to the Roman Empire. And the first emperor in this now empire is the August Caesar. And he has already been declared son of God. On the coinage of that day, we are told that Caesar Augustus is the savior of the world. This is the world into which Jesus was born. It was a world ruled by the brutal militarism of the Roman legions. Yeah, that's a far cry from a snow globe. Again, I know you don't want to hang that as an ornament on your tree. But still, that's the world into which Jesus was born. It was a world that was ruled by Rome and then governed locally by corrupt client kings like Herod the Great. It was a world where 
Justice had no place. And mercy's made to walk the plank. And why is that so? Because the world was arranged to serve the selfish interests of Caesar and the Roman elite. At the time of Jesus' birth, between 25 and 30 percent of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. They were coming up on one out of every three people were enslaved because that's the way they wanted the world arranged. A few elite at the top in almost unimaginable privilege standing on the backs of the poor and the oppressed. And so a taxation program was implemented by the August Caesar. That necessitated that Mary and her espoused husband, Joseph, would have to travel from Nazareth to their ancestral home in Bethlehem. And at this time, Mary was great with child. And so they have to make this 100-mile, difficult and dangerous journey all the way to Bethlehem because some Caesar in Rome said so. It was inconvenient to say the least. And yet, God is able to make all things work out for the good. Because it turned out that Mary, great with child, uh, would give birth, not in Nazareth where they were from, but in Bethlehem to which they had gone of necessity. But that works out just fine. Because you see, Bethlehem is the city of David. This is David's town. And Messiah is called the son of David. And beside, Micah the prophet had said, Oh, Bethlehem, oh, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you shall come a ruler who shall govern my people Israel. And so the prophecy was that Messiah was born and was to be born in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph didn't orchestrate it, sort of like Caesar did. As I said, God's able to cause all things to work out. Now, you know the story. Was there room in the inn? No, there was not. They're travelers. And so they have to find lodging. There were inns, but there was no room in the inn. So Mary and Joseph found lodging among the livestock. We think of kind of a, uh, you know, a wooden stable like you might find here in the Midwest of America. That was not the case. It would be, it would be a cave atop which were the living quarters. And then, then they would have a cave. There's a picture of one. This is, this is from Bethlehem today. I mean, these things still exist. This is taken in Bethlehem. It gives you an idea of what it's like. I mean, some are more, more sophisticated, and that one's pretty rustic. But uh, I've seen a lot of them, where you would have the living quarters up, and then down below was a cave. 
where he kept the livestock, and that's where they were able to find shelter because there was no room in the inn. And it was while they were there, among the livestock, in the cave, down below the living quarters, that Mary's time was fulfilled. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a feeding trough. Manger sounds a little too romantic, you know. It's, it's for the animals. It's where the ox and the ass would eat their straw. And so she wraps him in swaddling clothes as you do and laid him in that manger. Like original humanity, the second Adam enters the world as a cave dweller. Living in a cave in his first days. This baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. But it makes more sense if you understand this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Ah, Lamb of God, mangers, begins to make sense. The true Son of God was born not in a palace. I mean, there was, you know, there was the August Caesar bearing the title. Bearing the title, you know, that he was the Son of God. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and he grew up in splendor and royalty and a palace and all of that. But the true Son of God is not born in a palace. There's no room in the inn. He's born in a cave and laid in a manger. This is, this is the stunning descent of the Son of God into humility. I mean, you would think at least if the Word's going to become flesh, it'll come and dwell among us in splendor and luxury. But no, not even in a rustic inn, but in the stable beneath the rustic inn. So the true Son of God was born not in a palace, but in a subterranean Stable, that is underground. I mean, if you, if you go visit the traditional site where Christ was born in Bethlehem, you go to the church of the nativity, you go down under the ground to find that 14-pointed silver star that marks the place where Christ was born. It's underground. Subterranean. When the king of kings was born in a cave, heaven began to undermine the principalities and powers. A subversive movement is beginning. Something is going to chip away at their foundations. Now we know, I've told you, you know, there's incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, or let's just say Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. We know on Good Friday and Easter there were earthquakes. Gospel text tells us that. When Christ died, there was an earthquake. And when Christ was born, there was an earthquake. I wonder, was there an earthquake when he was born? We're not told so, but I like to think so. I mean, at least there was a, an earthquake in the spirit. A disruption in the force. <laughs> the Logos has come into the world. And this logos, this word of God is going to undermine the principalities and powers. G.K. Chesterton said, even Herod, the great king, felt that earthquake under him and swayed within his swain palace. Whoa, what was that? That's he who was born king of the Jews, pal. That's who that is. Luke 2, verse 8. 
And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. In the Christmas story, we learn that there are two groups of people who knew about the birth of the king of the Jews, that is Messiah, before anyone else. They are the shepherds and the magi. The shepherds were simple people pursuing a simple life. And they were nearby. I mean, they're just right outside the little village of Bethlehem. They're there in their fields. They're right nearby. They are geographically near. They are culturally near. These are Jewish people. These are shepherds. They're not sophisticated. They're not highly educated. They're simple people living simple lives, and they're nearby. And they are among the two groups of people that knew about the birth of the king of the Jews before anyone else did. The other group are the Magi. They're the very opposite. They're not Jewish, they're Gentile. They're not unlearned, they're highly learned. These are Zoroastrian priests and astrologers. They are not nearby. They live more than a thousand miles away in Persia. So they're kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. The simple shepherds living nearby. The learned magi a thousand miles away, Jews and Gentiles, near and far, it's very, they're very different. But they both had this in common. They both kept vigil. While the rest of the world slept, the shepherds and the magi kept vigil. The shepherds are keeping their flock by night. They're in the fields at night, watching over their flock. They're keeping vigil. They're not asleep. The rest of the world is sleeping. They're awake. And the Magi, well, they study the starry heavens. You don't do that in the daytime. They're keeping vigil by night. You know what that is? That's Advent. That's what Advent is about. Advent is about wake up, pay attention, Keep vigil, watch and wait, watch and wait, watch and wait. We're waiting. We're waiting for God to do something in our lives, something new. We're waiting, but we're also watching. We're, we're trying to dial in. We're trying to be spiritually attuned. We're not sleeping. We're not slumbering. We're, we're waking up. We're waking up. The rest around us may be asleep, not knowing what's going on, but we are awake like the Magi. Like the shepherds. The Magi read it in the stars and made their long journey. The shepherds heard it from an angel. So there they are. They're keeping watch over their flocks by night. There might be a little, a little campfire to take the edge off of the chill. But other than that, there's no light. It's nighttime, it's dark. And lo, the angel of the Lord appeared unto them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Angels 
One theologian has described them, Bogokov describes them as rays of divinity. I mean, the sun itself is like unto God, but the angels are like the rays of light that come into our world. And there they are in the dark, keeping watch, keeping vigil, and there's an angel appears. And the glory of the Lord is shining. So it had been dark, and now it's bright, and it's light. And were they afraid? Were they afraid, I'm asking you? How afraid were they? They were sore afraid. I'm, I'm King James today, folks. I want my Christmas story king because they weren't just greatly afraid or very afraid. They were so afraid it made them sore. <laughs> they were sore afraid. And so what does the angel say? You know what the angel says? What, the, what does the angel say? Fear not. Why? For behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. That's why we had to hear the Christmas story in all those languages. Because for all people. And I mean, it's 2020, right? So we need some glad tidings of great joy. We need so the glad tidings of great joy is this. A Savior is born. No matter what it's like now, I mean, no matter what we have to go through, it's going to be all right because there's a Savior. Amen. We don't have to save ourselves. There's a Savior. Uh-huh. And the angel says to the shepherd, this, this will be a sign for you. You shall find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So I guess they start investigating caves that have livestock and mangers. No baby here. No baby here. Oh, we found one. It's a cave, manger, baby, swaddling clothes. Well, that was the message that the angel gave to them, that that's how they were going to find this. This will be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And then verse 13, and suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, good will toward men. So one angel kind of shows up, makes them sore afraid, and then calms them down and tells them glad tidings of great joy. And then there's a whole choir of angels. A great choir of angels suddenly appear. There's a lot of angels that surround the Christmas story. An angel told Zechariah that he and Elizabeth would have a baby and to call him John and he's going to grow up and prepare the way. This is John the Baptist. An angel told Mary, you're highly favored and you shall conceive Bear a son. How? I don't know. I'm at the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And therefore, the child that is born of you will be called the Son of God. An angel explained that to her. Angel appears to the shepherds and tells them where they can find the Messiah. To Joseph, the husband of Mary, angels appear no less than three times. And here we're told that. Suddenly there was with the one angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, 
and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. I want you to notice this, that the angels were from heaven. There appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. And they are saying, or let's say singing, let's say it that way. They're singing of peace on earth. So angels from heaven singing about peace on earth. Angels from heaven singing about peace on earth, heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the basic division in creation. Heavens, earth. Now, mystically understood, which is the way to understand Genesis 1.1, this verse is speaking of two entirely different worlds, the material world and the spiritual world. I mean, you can think of, you know, in the beginning was the heavens, you know, that's the stars, the planets, and all of that. And then there's the earth. That's one way of thinking. That's a more literal way. But a better, more mystical way is to understand, well, you know, the stellar and planetary heavens are still part of the material realm. They're just there. We're here and they're there. Uh, there is a more fundamental division, and that is the division of the material world and the spiritual world. I mean, there is a spiritual world that does not belong to the material world. It's often called the heavens. Our Father who art in heaven doesn't mean that God's, you know, out there near Saturn somewhere. It's just a completely different world. The spiritual world. The heavens are the spiritual world. This is the world of God and the world of angels. Angels are mysterious. I've been thinking about Angels. Been reading some theology on angels. Not sure what to make of it all. Angels are mysterious beings, to say the least. And I think we should maybe be careful about claiming to know too much. But I think we can say that angels have to do with God extending grace into our world. Angels are emissaries of God's goodwill sent to assist afflicted humanity. I'll say that again. Angels are emissaries of God's good will, sent to assist afflicted humanity. We humans live our lives on earth suspended between heaven and hell, between life and death, between good and evil. But we are not left to fend for ourselves. God sends help from heaven. This help is angelic. Now, angelophanies, that's a fancy word for the appearance of angels. Angelophanies may be extremely rare. Most probably you'll never experience one. But whereas angelophanies may be extremely rare, Angelic assistance may be nearly constant. You're being helped all the time by that which you don't see and are probably unaware of. In these Christmas stories involving angels, the angels actually appeared. That's how we know the stories. I mean, in the Christmas story, an angel helps Zechariah understand the significance of of this late-in-life birth that they're going to experience. An angel helps Mary prepare to become the mother of the Son of God. How? By the Holy Spirit. 
An angel helps Joseph understand what's going on, first of all. And then when to get out of town. And then when to come back. Angels help Joseph with all of that. In these stories, the angels actually appear. That's how we know the stories. But how many times in our own lives have we been helped to understand something? Or we've been helped to prepare for something. Or we've been protected from something. Or we've been prompted to take the right course at the right time. But we were either entirely or mostly unaware of any heavenly assistance. That's how I think of angels. I think we're surrounded by angels. I think we've come to a multitude of the heavenly host in festal assembly, but we may not ever be aware of it in the material sense. But in the spiritual reality, it's there. Now, in this Christmas story, an angel helps the shepherds find the newborn Messiah. And then an angel, a multitude of the angels, a choir, I like to call them, a choir of angels, appears to the shepherds singing their song of Messiah, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Heaven seeks to pull us toward peace and goodwill. Heaven says, come on, move toward peace and goodwill. Doesn't have to be this way. There's peace, move toward it. There's goodwill, lean into it. Heaven seeks to pull us toward peace and goodwill while hell pushes us toward war and malice. If we cooperate with hate and with ill will, that's, a, that's, that's wishing malice and harm upon those that you have learned to hate. If we cooperate with hate and ill will, we are left bereft of heaven's aid and the angels sing their songs in vain. But at Christmas time, we are reminded of a better way. It's the way of heaven. It's the way of the angels. It's the way of Christ. It's the way of the Prince of Peace. We are reminded that the world will not be saved by us hating those whom we have convinced ourselves are the bad guys. That's, you know, that's putting a fine point on it, but that's how a lot of people think about it. They say, you know, the world's messed up. Must be somebody out there I can blame. It's them. And I hate them for it. And if I can just get enough people to hate them with me, we can save the world. Ha! I mean, that's, that's the anti-gospel. It's believed all the time. Now it's dressed up prettier than that. You know, it's cloaked in the nobility of a great cause sort of thing. But it's all just really, if I can just get enough of the world to join me in my hatred of them, the world will be saved. But at Christmas time, we're reminded that's not true. Nothing about that's true. We are reminded that the world is not saved by getting the world to hate those whom we hate. The world is saved by Jesus Christ. And Jesus calls us to his way of love and mercy and peace. On Christmas, an angel guides us to the manger 
where we find the Savior wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. On Easter, an angel rolls away the stone so that we can see that the Savior has shed his grave clothes and risen from the dead. The one wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger, is the Savior of the world. And the one who was wrapped in grave clothes, lying in the tomb, is risen, and the world is saved. Let's pray. Almighty God, it's been a tough year. It's been a year in which our lives have been disrupted, maybe in unprecedented ways. It's been a year in which death has stalked our land. Nevertheless, in this season of Christmas, we find cause for hope because, as the carol says, yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. We thank you that Jesus Christ is the light of the world and this light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not and cannot overcome it. So we rejoice in the feast that celebrates the birth of Christ our King even as we look forward to a world without the specter of a pandemic. We ask for your grace to be upon health workers and all of the rest who are helping our world to recover. But as we look back over this past year, this year of 2020, we know that we also have much for which to be grateful. Yes, we thank you for every grace, every mercy, every moment of joy, every fleeting moment of happiness that visit us like an angel. We thank you for our friends and family who have borne our burdens with us. And so as we prepare for Christmas, may we find comfort in the song of the angels. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward us all. Amen and amen. Stand with me. Let's confess our faith right before Christmas. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's confess our sins and receive forgiveness. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done, 
and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and for those who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come, because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. The body of Christ, broken for you. The blood of Christ, shed for you.